The story is told of a uh, small, very small, kind of a mousy man who was hired as a bartender and that was out in the Old West. And the saloon owner advised him of this one thing. He said, you know what, if I ever or you ever hear of anybody saying, Big John's coming to town, you've got to get out of town as quick as you can. Because this guy's the meanest, orneriest person that ever walked the West. And uh, it's nothing but trouble. And so this guy worked this job for several months, never had any incidents. It was a great job. And uh, sure enough, one day this, this fellow comes running into the bar and he says, Hey, everybody, get out of town. Big John's coming. And in their haste to get out of town, they knocked this little guy over, and he was knocked over and didn't get out in time. And all of a sudden, through the door, man, comes this big, huge guy, big, black, bushy beard, wild, crazy-looking hair. He's riding on a buffalo. He's swinging a rattlesnake as a whip. He goes knocking into this thing, knocks the hinges off, goes up to the bar. And by now, you know, the bartender's kind of stuck. The saloon keeper's there, and he, he goes, would you like a drink? And he says... Boom, he goes, give me a drink, splits the bar. The guy pours him a drink, and the guy slams his drink back down, and you know, the little guy's looking at him saying, would you like another drink? And he goes, no, man, I ain't got time. Big John's coming to town. <laughs> you know, I thought about that story, and you know, it reminds us that you know, things aren't always as they may appear at first glance. And that certainly is true of the uh, passage we've been examining uh, in Luke's gospel or his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. You know, if you recall in Luke chapter 21, if you want to turn with me, uh, in Luke chapter 21, um, Jesus' disciples were in awe of the majesty of the temple and all the surrounding buildings. And it was for good reason. The temple was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It had been under reconstruction for about 46 years. So you can imagine the work that was being put into it. And it was actually because things weren't getting done. It wasn't like construction in our, in our era. You know, it's, you, you may be under work for 46 years, but you're only getting a year's worth of work done. But uh, this was different. I mean, they were working hard for 46 years, and you could see the result of it. It was absolutely tremendous. You know, the, the, uh, the, the location of the temple, you know, it's in its location on Mount Moriah, it gave this imposing dominance of the surrounding countryside. As you came to it, it looked like it was just a massive pile of gold that would just glisten in the sunshine. It had these nine massive gates that would go into the city, and it was just an incredible building. In fact, Josephus, who was a recognized uh, uh, Jewish historian, says this of the exterior of the building, it wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. It was like everything that you could ever imagine in a building was there. It says, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as if they were looking directly into the solar rays. It says, to approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. And some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, and six in breadth, which would be about the size of a, of a trained boxcar. So this building was absolutely tremendous, and it was an incredible sight, and yet it was from this sight that Jesus launched into this great teaching that we have in Luke chapter 21, because as they looked at this, the disciples said, man, isn't this just incredible? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you something. And what he was saying in verses, you know, for the rest of the chapter, but we'll look at in verses 29 through 38, he was saying that, you know what, don't ever get hung up on what you see. Because if there's anything that we should ever place our hope and our trust and our confidence, it's not in material things. And the Bible's so clear of that. You know, if we put our hope in riches, the book of Proverbs says, they'll take up wings and they'll fly away. You know, and, and that it won't hold us up. He says, if you're going to put your hope and trust in anything, put your hope and trust in the eternal word of God, in the promises of God, in the the true statements of God, what God has to say. If you're going to hope and trust in anything, we put our hope and trust in Him and His word, and even not in what we see, because what we see is so deceptive, because the Bible says that what we see is only temporary, and that which is unseen is eternal. 
And so we have to rethink things. And in Luke chapter 21, starting with verse 29, he gives us another reason to put our hope and trust in the eternal word of God. He says, and behold, Jesus told them a parable and said, behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. As we look at this particular passage throughout, you'll recall that Jesus was giving instructions and, and, and uh, reasoning as to what time all of these events would occur. If you remember in verse 6, they said, that, you know, after Jesus said there wouldn't be one stone left upon another, that this place is going to be devastated. They said, well, when is this going to happen and, and how will we know it? What signs will there be that we can look for to warn us in advance that these things would take place? And uh, he was talking about future events, which at the time were future that he mentioned it. Uh, as we look back, one of those events actually occurred uh, in history in 70 AD. We've talked about the fact the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed under Titus. And uh, so that took place after these words, but it took place in history that we can look at. And there's another thing he was talking about, specifically the event was his second coming, when Jesus would come again. And uh, the world today, they ask, you know, well, when is he coming? What are the signs of his coming? And there are generations who have mocked the fact that Christians throughout church history have said that, you know, and warned people of the judgment of God that one day every person will give an account to Jesus Christ, whom God has turned over all of judgment. We know from John 5 that all of judgment has been given to Jesus. From Philippians, he inherited a name above every name, that that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God and that he'll return and he will judge the living and the dead. The great apostles' creed throughout church history has warned people that Jesus is returning someday. And those who mock, mock the same as those who saw Noah building the ark. Oh yeah, sure, when's the rain coming? They mock the return of Jesus like those who mock the building of the ark. Jesus is coming, yeah, well, you've been saying that now for 2,000 years, and he's not here yet. And so the Bible clearly teaches that, you know, what one day is a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is a day, and that God is not, you know, hesitant as far as his return, but he's patient in hoping and praying from our standpoint that all who will come to faith will come to faith, but from God he knows sovereignly all who will. And so this time that we see here in this particular passage kind of blends in and we become somewhat confused as to what he's referring to, when he's referring to it, who is he talking to. And so we go down through and we break out in an outline form that I think will be helpful. And the first thing that we're going to look at is, you know, Jesus tells them the parable of the fig tree. And in verses 29 through 31, we see that clearly we're told he told them a parable. And a parable was taking something in life that people were familiar with and teaching a spiritual truth. Taking that which is physical in the physical world and then applying it to the spiritual world in a way that we can look at that and say, oh, good, okay, now I can understand it. And so in this particular thing, we're told that in this parable, we're told that we're supposed to behold or, or consider the fig tree. The word behold or consider means to take a good hard look at it because I'm about to teach you a truth. And if you will notice and observe the things around you, the point that Jesus is making continually is that, you know what, all of God's creation has a purpose. Everything that God does has a purpose. And the purpose is to reveal to you and I spiritual truth. The purpose is to reveal to us the reality and the presence of God. 
everything. When you look at the stars, it declares the handiwork of God. You look at the stars and the moon and the sun and the planets. And, you know, when people study that and observe that and they go, how does all this work and how does it all, you know, fit and how is it all, you know, the, the symmetry and this, this order and this structure. and Everything shouts, hey, there's a creator, there's a designer. And it's not even those, quote, big things. We're told in the book of Proverbs to consider the ant and to learn from her ways. That we're to look at the smallest of God's creation and the largest of what he has done. And everything that we see teaches us about God. And so he's saying, if you will just notice for a moment and consider carefully for the purpose of coming to a conclusion, Jesus is saying, consider the fig tree and you'll learn something about spiritual truth. Now, the problem with considering the fig tree is that the nation of Israel was often portrayed throughout Scripture as a fig tree. We've even seen that in our own study through Luke's gospel account. If you flip back again to Luke chapter 13, remember as he was rebuking them, he said that, you know, that, that, the, uh, that, that the nation of Israel was like the fig tree. And in verse 6 of chapter 13, he said, and Jesus began telling this parable. Here's another story. A certain man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, and it came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. He said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. And he was talking to the nation of Israel and saying, Look, you know what? God had planted among the people of the world, this fig tree. And the fig tree was the nation of Israel. And Israel stood out from all the other peoples of the world because they were the keepers of God's law. And they were the chosen race that God said, Hey, through you I will be glorified. Though you are the least of all people, I will make you the greatest because, you know what? If I'm with you, you're no longer insignificant. And so he said, look at this, this fig tree. And this fig tree was there, but it, bared, it, it, it had no fruit whatsoever. He said, you know what, I'm going to remove it. And he said, no, be patient, because it will ultimately bear fruit. And so those who are listening to Jesus, the problem that they would have is, he's telling a, a, a parable about a fig tree, thus he must be talking about Israel again. And so if he's talking about Israel, then all of the interpretation of what he's about to say will be filtered through a very subjective lens. Oh, he's talking about the nation of Israel. So the problem that we have is, who's Jesus speaking to? If he's speaking to Israel, then what he's about to say applies specifically to them. But if he's speaking to a broader or more general audience, then all of us now as Gentiles, we go, well, wait a minute, now he might be talking about us. How do we know that? Because here's what he said. He goes, look at the fig tree and all the other trees. And so as we sit and we try to dig into the scripture and we try to understand, okay, you know, Lord, what are you saying? You know, and, and I'll be the first to admit that oftentimes it is very difficult to, to study the Word of God. But God promises those of us who are diligent in our study that He will reveal truth. Some of us like to just, you know, we want to read it and go, oh, okay, you know, what does it say? Oh, there's, our, there's my devotion, my little thought for the day. And you just kind of run on. And what I want to challenge all of us to do is become students and diligent in studying Scripture. And seeking God and searching the word and seeking his truth and, and, and digging in to find out those greater truths that he has for us that go beyond just that which is surface level, but those deeper truths. And as you get into it, you begin to realize, man, this is, this is, this is great stuff. This is awesome. He told them a parable. He said, behold, the fig tree. And all the other trees, now those who would read this passage and they know that it refers to end times or those things that, that are, are going to precede the coming of Jesus, some get all excited because they go, man, you know what, on May 15th, 1948, the nation of Israel emerged from all the peoples of the world. And so those who would think that this is referring to Israel would say that, you know what, the, the, the emergence of the nation of Israel in 1948 was a huge fulfillment of prophecy and that would precede the, coming, the second coming of Jesus. They would look at that and say, you know what, that, that, that's a sign or, or that's a shadow or a foreshadow of Jesus coming. Now, the problem I have with that interpretation is that he goes on and says, not only should you look at the fig tree, but look at all the other trees. 
So if we begin, begin to look at it out from an allegorical standpoint, we would say, well, what are all the other trees? Well, if one tree is a nation, all the other trees are nations as well. And so some would say that the emergence of many nations or nationalism would also precede the second coming of Christ. So not only is it significant that, that Israel emerged as a nation, it also becomes very significant in our generation as we look around the world at the emergence of many nations. Because if you sit back and look at human history, there was a time where, you know what? Hey, you had the Roman Empire, you had the Egyptians, you had the Babylonians, you had the Medes and the Persians, and they pretty much dominated all the known world. Now today we can look out and say, man, look at the number of nations that have emerged even in our lifetime. Look at the fall of Russia and see the number of nations that emerged just from what used to be looked at as just Russia. And so people get excited and they look at that. Now... When you look at something allegorically, it opens the door for all kind of crazy things to happen. Because then anyone can look at it and say, well, I think it means this. Well, I'm telling you that it could mean this based on these things. Because we know from Scripture that, G, that, that the Word of God refers to Israel as a fig tree. We know that if it's a fig tree and he says, look at all the other trees, that it refers to other nations as well. But don't ever get so caught up in digging so deep that you miswrite what's before your eyes. Because notice the purpose of the parable. He says that the purpose of the parable, he says if you would look at the fig tree and all other trees, as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. And so what's the purpose of the parable? The purpose of the parable is to recognize that the kingdom of God is near. So let's just stop and think for a second that maybe Jesus, when he's referring to the fig tree and other trees, is talking about trees. How's that for an interpretation? Because he says, if you look at the fig tree and the other trees and you see leaves on them, duh, you know it's summertime. It's beautiful. Because why? He's just trying to teach us to recognize when the kingdom of God is near. So you and I, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to walk out in your yard in the springtime and see buds on a tree and say, you know what? It must be spring. And when the buds fall off and the, and the leaves appear, you go, oh, it's summertime. And if you lived on the East Coast like we did, you would know when it was fall because that's when you spent most of your life raking leaves and trying to figure out a way to get them to blow in your neighbor's yard. You know, so you didn't have to do it. You know, and then they came out the blower things. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, and the point again is this. Everything God does has a purpose. So we look at the trees around us and we say it's springtime, it's summertime, it's fall, it's the dead of winter. We can observe God's creation and have an understanding of when certain things happen. He's saying just like you can look at leaves on a tree and know it's summer, so you'll be able to know that the coming of Jesus, the second coming, is near because all of these things will be happening. Emergence of Israel? Hey, you know what? Possibly. The rise of nationalism? Possibly. But all I know is this, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, it happened. So all I know is that all of those things are a foreshadow of the fact that today we are one day closer to the return of Jesus than we were yesterday. And God's timing is perfect and he's right on time. And so we begin to realize that, you know what, that's where we're going. The whole purpose of the parable is to help us recognize the kingdom of God is near. All of history is moving to a great culmination. And you and I understand that, and we need to explain that to people. We need to warn them that they will be judged for sin. We need to warn them, as Noah tried to for 120 years, warn his generation that the great rain was going to come, and not one of them repented. You and I have the responsibility to warn people that, you know what, human history is moving toward a great culmination. 
There are those who believe that, you know, history just is circular. You know, it just goes round and round in circles and it has no culmination or no end. But even those who claim to be agnostic or otherwise look at the universe and they, and, and they say, you know what, everything is winding down. The sun is burning out. Everything is winding down. You and I are winding down. Everything is coming to a great culmination. And the great culmination, according to the word of God, is the return of Jesus Christ to judge humanity for sin and also for God's people for our faithfulness in serving him this side of eternity. There is a great day that is coming. And Jesus in this passage is discussing that or helping us to see it. So we need to recognize that, you know what, the purpose is to let us know that day is closer today than it was yesterday. You know, what's so unfortunate is that many folks are so focused on looking at signs that they forget the focal point should be looking for Jesus. You know, we get all hung up on, you know, prophecy conferences and all of this and people that get hung up on the emergence of Israel and the rise of nationalism and, you know, and the, and the European economic community and, you know, the euro now and, you know, the, that ten nation federation that the Bible talks about. And, you know, we get all hung up on all of these things. And personally, I think a lot of it becomes distracting to the point that we forget that all of those things should help us to become more focused on Jesus and his return and impending judgment so we can warn those who don't know him that that day is coming some of god's people get so hung up on prophecy and so hung up on all of these signs that they forget about warning people that the savior is coming and to put their hope and trust in him before it's too late and that's what this purpose of all of this is is that's why we are not to seek signs but we're to look up for a savior who is our blessed hope You know, as I read this passage, you know, this truth was impressed upon me once more in a new and fresh way. And I want you to note from verses 29 through 30, and this is kind of where I want to kind of step aside from the the context of this, but but not in its entirety because something that God has, has impressed upon me over and over again, and I can't emphasize it, I don't believe that I can emphasize this enough, and that is this. When he told this parable and he said, Behold the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as you see them uh, put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that it's summertime. One of the things that God's creation does so beautifully is emphasizes that there is a cause and effect. There is a cause and effect throughout all of God's creation. For example, when I go and have, and as you go and you have different medical tests that are done, uh, you know, you go do a CT scan or something of that nature, and you look at the results, and last week I had some blood work for another scan that I've got to do this week, and, you know, when they measure this blood work and they do these workups and they'll look at it and they'll, they'll go down through and they'll say, you know, your, your kidneys are fine or your liver is fine or, no, there's a problem in your liver, and they can look by the effect, and the effect is that your, your, your blood work. And they can look at mine and say, oh, you know what, your white blood count is down, but we know why, because you're doing this chemo, and the chemo's killing your white blood cells. And so we expected that your white blood count would be dropping, because then it means that the chemo or the, the drugs that we're using are doing what we thought it was going to do. And they can look at that and say, well, the effect is you have a low white, white blood count. The cause is, you know, in this particular case, chemotherapy, or the cause may be a disease that you have. Hey, you got a problem in your liver, you got a problem with your kidney function, you got a problem with your blood sugar level, you got a problem, and it may be, you know what, we, we need to figure out what the cause is because the effect is what we see. The cause may be you need to change your diet. The cause may be you've got a disease that was previously undetected and now we've got a flag and we need to dig further and find out what was going on. But my point of all of this is that there is always a cause and effect. Jesus said there is a cause. And the cause for summertime or leaves to come out is that the sap would run through a tree and the effect would be that these leaves would come forth. Taking that into consideration, as I thought about this passage, you know, God has put upon my heart the need to emphasize this truth over and over and over again, and that is this. When a sinner recognizes his or her sinfulness, and that before God they were guilty before God, and comes to a point where they understand they are guilty as charged, 
and they repent of their sin, which means they have a change of heart and mind about you know, who they think they are and whether they think they're good or not good. And the Bible says none of us are good. None of us are righteous. We all come into this world born rebellious against God because it's a, it's a, a, a congenital birth defect called sin nature. So as in Adam all men sinned, we all come into the world rebelling against God. As we recognize what God says is true, man, we're all in rebellion against God. And we have a change of heart and mind that says, you know what, God, you're right. I'm not as good as I thought I was. Therefore, I turn from that lifestyle of doing the things that are wrong before God. I turn to you and I repent and I, and I seek your forgiveness I believe Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe that's the only way that I could be made right before you. And so I receive him as my Lord, my Savior. I I throw myself upon his mercy. And the Bible says that those who do so are born again, not by our efforts... It's not our repentance, it's not our turning, it's not our you know, saying, I'm not going to do these things. It's throwing ourselves by grace through faith upon the finished work of Christ God. I believe what you say, that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that if I would just receive him as my Savior with a repentant and broken heart, that you will adopt me into your family. I'll be a child of God to those who believe in your name because that's what your word says. I believe your promises. And the Bible says for those who do, they're born again by the will of of God and act a supernatural act of God and the great cause is God and the effect should be that we are no longer who we used to be that we are not the same if any man's in Christ he's a new creature old things pass away all things become new you and I cannot ever be the same as we were before that great cause, God, stepped in and caused us to be born again. And the effect in our life is no different than the effect of sap running up into a branch and out into a tree that pushes forth buds, that brings forth new life, that shows these leaves that are there. The cause which is, which is not seen, as Jesus said, but we can see the effect or the results like the wind that is blowing, we must be born again. How do we we know that it happens just like you can see the wind having an effect or action upon the world. We know that God's great cause is that he changes human hearts. And those who were dead to God become alive to God. Those who are living in sin now reject sin. Those, there has to be a change of thought, word, and deed. And the reason that this is so critical is because we live in a culture that has dumbed down and watered the gospel to the point where if you just say you said a prayer, you can keep on going on living in sin and living like hell. And somehow or another, you're going to mock God and believe that you're still a child of God. And the Bible says, examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Because when the great cause God moves in your life, there better be an effect. And there has got to be life change. And it is so critical for me as a pastor who's concerned about each and every person that hears my words to recognize and understand, do not be deceived into thinking you're okay with God if there is no evidence in your life of this great cause who has now affected in your life a life change. Don't think just coming to church is a big life change. It could be a start and it could be a part of it. Don't think trying to read your Bible is a huge life change. It could be a start and it could be a part of it. But it goes much deeper than that. And we need to recognize and look that the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And we begin to look at these things and compare to how we used to be. And I used to be impatient. I'm finding that I'm becoming more patient. I used to hate people. And now I'm finding that I love those even that I don't like. I used to be a very resentful and bitter and angry person who would hold grudges and I find myself being compelled to forgive them for they know not what they do. I used to lie, cheat and steal and I'm finding that, you know what, I've got to be truthful and I've got to not be lazy and I've got to work hard. And, and, and you know, and drunkenness is for foolish people and it's dissipation and we'll see, see more of that in a moment. And it's a waste of time and it's useless and there's nothing beneficial about it. And drugs and partying and sexual morality and all these things. I'm so convicted by the presence of God's Spirit in my life that I know those things are now wrong. And though maybe I choose to do those things, there's a struggle that's going on that says, Stop doing those things. I freed you from that. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. And there's a new you. See, all of that has got to be true and indicative of a person who the great cause, the creator of the universe, has has caused us to be born again. 
And there has got to be an effect. And Jesus said, you know what? As simple as it is, looking at a tree and you see leaves, you know it's summer. Let me tell you, people, it is just as simple to look at the fruit of the life of a believer and know whether they're truly in Christ or not. And if you don't see the evidence, is there truly a cause? And the Bible's clear. If there's no conviction of sin, there's been no conversion. If there's no effectual life change, there's been no great cause. Examine yourself. Has God the greatest cause created in you as you've become born again? A desire to please Him in your thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds or actions or behavior. If there is no effect, there has been no cause. But today is the day of the Lord. And whoever cries out to Him, He hears our cries and He welcomes us to Himself. If there is no life change, It's because your life has not been changed. And the Bible says that we must throw ourselves upon his mercy to be born again by his will, by his work. Salvation is all of God. And that's why we praise him. So as we look at this this parable, the fig tree, you know, he says, even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. And so he goes on and he talks about the prediction of this generation or the generation in verse 32. And he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. And there's a relationship of this generation to all these things. And there are several possible viewpoints for this as well. And it gets confusing because as we've read through this, he's saying, well, wait a minute. You know, we know that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. We know he's also talking about the second coming of the Lord. We know that a generation is a specific number of years, 20-some years or whatever. And so he's like, well, which generation he's talking about and what are the things that he's referring to and, and how do we know? And so we look at this and it becomes very apparent that, you know, the generation that Jesus spoke to at the time would live to see the the destruction of Jerusalem. So many of those that were in the audience that day lived to see the destruction and also had a choice of heeding his warning to get out of Dodge and get out of town before it happened. We also know that, you know, the nation of Israel as a people, that perhaps it's referring to this generation, the generation of God's people, Israel, because God's not finished with them. And despite all the annihilation attempts by, by uh, you know, by nations throughout generations, God's not done with Israel, and all of God's promises to them will take place exactly as he said. Read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we know that that's the case as well. And it could also mean that, you know, the people in the tribulation period who are living during that last three and a half year period of time where that great tribulation or judgment of God is poured out upon the earth, you know, we'll know and see these things happening and that generation will live to see the day where Jesus actually will return and place his feet on the Mount of Olives, which is where this, by the way, this Bible study was taking place. How awesome is that? Where Jesus is standing in the very place where he'll return talking about the fact he's coming back and that was the place. That's pretty cool. But as we go through it, one thing I know is that all of these views individually and collectively are facts they're all true the generation that was alive during that day saw the destruction of Jerusalem the people of Israel will live to see that the promises of God is promised throughout his word and the reason that we know it is because of the reliability of God's word and Jesus emphasized it by saying this he said you know what hey heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not and it's a huge statement that he made Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus equated the word of God, the Old Testament, to being God's word. And that God's word will never pass away. God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything around us will pass away, but the word of God and the souls of people live forever. And what Jesus said very emphatically, and you can't miss this, is that don't miss this. The very word of God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, said to us very clearly, my words will not pass away. Why? Because he's God. That's what he said. 
I just get so saddened when I hear people who claim to believe the Bible who will say that nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God. And this is just one of many examples where he claimed to be God in human flesh. My words are eternal. So whatever I say, count on, bank on, they're going to happen. Just as Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Rome, just as Jerusalem was turned upside down, just as every stone in the temple was left, you know, not one upon the other, just as all of those things happened, listen, His return will happen just as surely as those things happened. Every prophecy that's been fulfilled is one more stamp or endorsement of the reliability and trustworthiness of the fact that everything yet to happen will happen exactly as he says. And you know what? And that's why I've got peace with God through my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because God says I do. And that's why I know when I'm absent from the body, I'll be present with the Lord because God said I will. That's why one day I know that Jesus will return and with him will come all of his saints to reign with him in glory for that thousand year reign that's called the great millennial period how do we know that that'll happen because everything that God said will happen in the past has happened exactly as he said everything that's yet to happen in the future will happen exactly as it is now those are wonderful truths those are great hopes for all of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ now the sobering note is this and just as all of those great truths will happen so will the great truth of God's judgment be upon those in his wrath of those who reject Jesus Christ as God's provision for the forgiveness of their sins just as sure as heaven is in the future of the believer equally as sure is hell in the future of the unbeliever who rejects this act of mercy by Jesus on the cross and his resurrection on their behalf. And that should cause all of us who know Christ to have a sense of urgency and a sense of brokenness and and heartache for those who have never trusted in Jesus. Because it's just not the fact Jesus will come and judge which is true. But we've got another dynamic we're dealing with, and that is that we don't know the appointed time for each person we come in contact with when their day is coming. And as a reminder to all of us in this last year and a half that many of you have prayed for me and wonder, as we do, what this means as far as my lifespan or life expectancy There have been several of us in our congregation who have already beat me to the finish line that did not have that sense of impending, you know, uh, exit that maybe I do. And how much more should all of us have a sense of urgency because, you know what, you may be praying for me and find out, you know what, your day is today. My day may be today and it may have nothing to do with cancer. See, God wants us to all recognize and understand that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And so with that in mind and this sense of urgency, we look at this and the principles, we, we, we put everything together. The principles that he wants us to understand are threefold. Number one, be on guard. Be on guard. Notice this that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. What he's saying is, you know what? Be on guard. Paul told Timothy, pay close attention to yourself. And my, my, my challenge to all of us is this. We need to become better students of ourself. And it doesn't mean we become self-absorbed. It, become, it means that we become... People who become more aware of our own weaknesses and frailties. People who become more aware of the things that sidetrack us or distract us from those things that are important, which are eternal, versus that which is temporal. See, the disciples were all hung up on, look at the temple, isn't it beautiful, this magnificent material thing? Look at this, you know, everything. You know, they were all materially oriented. 
And if I think they were material-oriented, how much more so in our culture, this Western culture, are we materially oriented? And he's saying, you know what? Don't get hung up on material things, but you need to start focusing on eternal things. You need to be aware of those things that keep you from accomplishing God's purposes in your life. You need to be aware of those things that, you know what, they, they crowd out God out of your life. You know, you need to be looking at, you know what, is, is my career pleasing to God or am I so obsessed with my career I have no time for spiritual things? You know, you need to be, if you're a single person, is this relationship that I have with this other person, does it lead me into a deeper relationship with God or has it become a distraction or a stumbling block from where God may lead me in my life and therefore I've got to make a decision, who's number one, who's more important? We've got to look at the material things in our life and say, you know what, are we so absorbed with material things that we're not open to the things that God wants us to do with the resources that he's entrusted with us that have to do with eternal purposes rather than temporal purposes. And then you can examine that yourself. It's, you know, as you get your statements back of giving and tax time and things like that, you can look at objectively and measure, you know, are you becoming more generous towards God and toward his kingdom? Or, you know what, is your giving kind of flat or even going backwards because you're so absorbed by the things of this world, you want more and more material things. See, he's saying, you know, we need to be on guard against all those things that keep us from being everything that God would want us to be and are stumbling blocks along the way. For some of it's our hobbies. For some of it's it's television. For some of it's the Internet. For some of it's, you know, it's all those things that crowd into our life and they keep us from focusing on the things that are really important. And Jesus says, you better be on guard because so much of life is dissipation. And in Ephesians it says, don't get drunk with wine. It's dissipation. It's just a waste of time. He says, so much of what you do is a waste of time and it has no bearing whatsoever on that which is eternal or significant. You need to be on guard against those things. You need to be constantly asking yourself the question, you know what, am I self-absorbed? Am I self-centered? And I say to you, the way that you get around it is you, you become more of a giving, serving person. That you find ministry areas and you get involved and you serve the Lord and you serve His people and you serve those who are in need. And guess what? You won't even be worrying about your hobbies and, and those things that have taken up so much of your time because you'll be doing those things that have a focus on, on godly purposes. He's saying, you know, we need to be aware of the fact that one day Jesus is coming. And for God's people, I praise God, I will never give an answer or an account for sin because Jesus took that upon himself on the cross in my place. And as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed that transgression from me. And I praise God for what he has done for me in the person and the work of Christ. But the Bible says that I will, as, God, as, a God's, as God's child, give an account for how I live this life. For the purpose of being rewarded, to have greater responsibilities in that millennial kingdom or that earthly kingdom of Jesus where his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I ask myself the question, am I focused on those things that have significance? And he said, listen, because don't let that day come and catch you off guard. I wonder how many people in Jerusalem were like the people that were in the generation of Noah or like Lot's wife who was warned to flee from the wrath of God and was like, I'm too, I'm too dug in here. You know, that's not going to happen to me. God's people, we're to be aware of the fact that one day we're going to be judged how we live this life for God's kingdom and His purposes. And my responsibility as a pastor, and as I read this, this passage, is to challenge all of us, including myself, to be aware of that truth so we're not caught off guard. I don't want any of you to stand before the Lord one day and say, you know what, my pastor never told me anything about this day. Because write it down, I'm telling you today. That day's coming. And I don't want you, and I don't want to be caught off guard. I wonder how many people in Jerusalem who heard the warning that when you see the armies of Rome circle the city... We're told, you know, when you see those armies circling, the devastation is coming. It's time for you to get out of town. I wonder how many of them said, you know what? I'm not leaving, man. I just got my house fixed up. We just put granite in our sinks. Redid the kitchen. It's like, man, I, I can't leave all this behind. Oh, think about it. How many of us are like that? God says, hey, you know what? I want you to serve in an area. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And say, you know what? I, 
I don't got time for that. I just bought a second house and man, you know, my weekends are tied up fixing it up. I got stuff going on. I, you know, I, I'm trying to get ahead in my business. I'm trying to climb the corporate ladder. I'm trying to get another degree. I'm trying to lower my golf handicap. Oh, you laugh at that one because it didn't apply to you, huh? (laughs) Ah, I see where you're coming from. But see, we're all like that. And God says, you know what? You better be on guard so that your hearts aren't weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And here's the best one of all, the worries of life. Let me throw this out to you. Anybody that's one of those worry words, and I know that you define it as being, I'm just concerned, the people in your life that you're driving crazy look at you as being a person who worries about everything. Here's the great test for the worriers of the world. If Jesus came back today, would what you're worrying about be a big deal? Would it? Then why worry about it? Not only that, Jesus said, cast all your cares upon me and I'll care for you. Be anxious for nothing. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You going to worry about something? Why? That's disobedience. He says, cast your cares upon God. Let your requests be made known to God. Just turn it over to God. And guess what? And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So stop worrying about stuff. He goes on and talks about, you know, the worries of life, the deceitfulness of riches. The second thing he says, keep on the alert. Keep on the alert at all times, anticipating the one who will return. Listen, if you think the day that Jesus is coming back is some distant or remote event in your life and it will not happen eminently, then you will not live a life with a sense of urgency that it could happen today. We're no different as adults from what I have learned and observed than high school students whose parents are gone away on vacation or gone for the weekend and want to know when you're coming back. (laughs) And we all laugh because we know the only reason they want to know when they were coming back is so we don't catch them doing what they shouldn't be doing. That's it. Don't fool yourself otherwise. There's a reason the house is cleaned up. You got kids that don't clean any other time. You go away for the weekend and your house is spotless. You know something happened. And all you got to do is talk to the neighbors. That's what we did. And when you know the return is imminent, you clean up your act. Are we much different? If you knew Jesus was coming back today and would judge you on how you've lived your life as a believer of doing things that were significant for his kingdom, do you not think for a moment, I would hope that you're not this stubborn or or thick or or, or, or stiff-necked, that you wouldn't say, I'm going to at least give it some effort because he's coming back at three today. I'm going to go ahead and do something that has some eternal value. That's the way, that's sin nature. Is it going to be on the test? I'll pay attention. If not, I'm saving this for other things. So look, why do you think God doesn't tell us when Jesus is coming back? Because he knows us. All I say is this. Keep on the alert. And you know what? And pray for strength. Because God knows we need it. We can't do this on our own. It's so hard. It's so hard that it's impossible. But you know what? But not for God. Lord, I want my life to make a difference for your kingdom and for your glory. And it is so hard to do it in my own strength. So God, get me out of the way 
so that you can be working through me and seen in me because I can't do this. But I know you can. Keep watching and praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God help us all. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, for the truth of the eternal word of God, that everything that you tell us that has occurred in human history occurred because your word said it would before it occurred. Those things that will happen in human history in the future will take place exactly as you said. God, my prayer is for your people, those who have recognized their sin, repented and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, have been born again by the will of God, an act of the Spirit of God. My prayer is for those of us who have trusted in Christ, that we live each day with a sense of urgency, not only the sense of urgency of the return of Christ, but the sense of urgency that today might be that appointed day where we die and then comes our judgment. God, I thank you as one of your children that will never be judged for sin, but that we will be judged for how we live this life and the effectiveness that we had for your glory and for your kingdom's purposes. God, I pray for those of us who are weighted down by the dissipation of this life, material things and worldly things and earthly things that mean nothing in the overall scope of eternity, that we would become more Christ-centered, biblically directed, and led by the Spirit so that we can do those things that have eternal reward. God, my prayer also is for those who do not know you, that today would be the day that they would cry out, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I know I'm not perfect. And I believe to the best of my understanding that Jesus Christ came into the world and died on the cross in my place. That he rose again from the dead and he's alive and he hears my prayer even now. I pray that he would forgive me of my sin and I will trust in him as the only Savior that I'll ever have and ever need and ever know. God, help us all to live lives that have a sense of urgency. For the days are evil. May we redeem them wisely as we look for the great hope of every believer, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.